I don't know if you've listened to my podcast before, but sometimes there's a bit of explicit language, and this is one of those times. It's Thursday, January 18th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Perhaps you saw the Trump fake media awards the other day. Although Twitter is a form of media, and the GOP website, that also counts as media, and they failed, so was that the fake part? He promised awards, so he gives us a list. There were no categories, no nominees, just a list, a a list of 11. Who the hell does a top 11 list? That is so lazy. Anyway, the less time on Trump's ire at the media, the better. Only here's the thing I've dedicated the entire show to it. Nurse those grievances, sir. That is definitely the path to an approval rating of 40 or above. Those weren't even the best grievances. Those weren't even the right wrongs. They were just the ones that he's repeated the most. Like, if I were him, I would hammer again and again and again at all the media that didn't correctly and properly and prominently report that ISIS has been largely defeated. But in this list, on the awards list, was, you know, a complaint that one of the news networks showed a viral video about Japanese fish feeding or Polish hands shaking, and he's still angry about it. He's angry, but he's hurt. He's hurt, but angry. He's but hurt, is what I'm trying to say. Good use of everyone's time, attention, and resources. Just want to highlight this one, though. Number two, ABC News' Brian Ross chokes and sends markets in a downward spiral with false report. Well, let's report on that report. The Dow started the day at 24,272. It ended the day at 24,231. So yeah, the markets tumbled. What's that? 0.2%. Now, Trump said it was a downward spiral. So a spiral builds momentum, cannot be stopped. What actually happens is the Ross report, which was wrong, corrected, and he got suspended. Ross report comes out. The Dow goes down 300. And then some buying occurs because some people were like, well, this Ross, he's not that reliable. And maybe we're overreacting. So they, they make some money when they buy. Then it goes down again. Some selling occurs. But then some buying occurs. In the end, the Dow loses 0.2%. So then ABC retracts the report, Ross corrects the report, he gets suspended. So the next day the market's open, everyone comes in, they know the Ross report was fake. So what happens? The market, this runaway market, only thing in the way, Brian Ross, it goes down. And then it goes down again the next day. Maybe, I'm just throwing this out there, maybe there are other factors for why the market goes up and down rather than one dumbass report from Brian Ross. And oh, by the way, if the theory is the stock market, oh, but for that one bad report, look at all the value that Brian Ross and the news media sucked away from companies. I mean, when that was happening, you heard the numbers, right? The Dow was at 24 something. Now it's at 26. So everyone did fine, except for the idiots who sold on Brian Ross rumors. You lose. For everyone else with just a nice little buying opportunity, if you are the dumbest stock picker in the world, this may have hurt you. I don't know, or maybe you served for nine days in the Trump administration. So there's a little context for you for something that I probably took a little too seriously from the fake news report. But honestly, if you take those, I really sometimes just want to ask a very die-in-the-wool Republican or even a Trump supporter. And, and I'm sure they'd say, oh, this is just part of his showmanship. But if I honestly ask them, take those 11 complaints. And there are a bunch that were wrong. I think Krugman's prediction that we'd go immediately into a recession. That's kind of embarrassing. So you put them against and some of them were corrected immediately. Some of them weren't really even mistakes. They're just things that he objects to. You put that list next to birtherism, the claim that Obama was born in Kenya, and what even an extremely 
died in the wool Republicans say, yeah, the 11 are wrong. I don't know. Maybe they'd say it's the media's job to get it right. And it's just Donald Trump's job to get attention back before he was even running for president. So maybe that's the answer. In the spiel, I present to you a Peabody Award winning documentary about another item on that list, the time that Martin Luther King's bust was removed, but then quickly snuck back into the Oval Office. Well, that's what a lot of people are saying. That's how it happened. Like I said, this documentary is one of Peabody, I probably pronounced it wrong, it's a Peabody, Massachusetts Public Library Film Festival official selection. You'll want to listen to that. But first, if you're wondering how to think about the nature of truth or fair play or leadership, I've got right here Alan Jacobs, professor at Baylor, who has a handy, helpful book out about how to think. He's here to talk. So if you listen to this show, you know that the subject of uh, my next guest's book is pretty much, I don't know, the subject of most of the show when I'm not singing horribly, How to Think, subtitle, A Survival Guide for a World at Odds. I have to spoil it a little by telling you that Alan Jacobs concludes, even if we think better, it might be pleasurable for ourselves. I don't know how much it'll help us survive. Part of survival, in fact, is not thinking too critically. He points out, Alan Jacobs is a professor at Baylor University. He's uh, the thinking man's thinker. Hello, Alan. How are you? Hello, Mike. Good to be here. I guess the biggest idea I took away is what this book is not. And it's not one of those books. And I've had many of these authors on the show, like Daniel Kahneman and different thinkers who will point to heuristics or biases or mental shortcuts, point them out and say, these are the opponents of good thinking. You note many of the biases, but I guess a big theory of yours is when we fail to think correctly, it's not because we're falling into familiar traps that each have a label per se. Yeah, or or if we are, it's not something that we can fix by uh, saying, "Oh, let me look at my list of cognitive biases here." Right, or Let right, me right. look at my list of Wait heuristics. Wait a minute, that was a you know, straw the, man. Now I'll be better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just that's just not how we function. That's not how our minds work. And one of the things I really wanted to emphasize in this book is how much our ability or inability to use those kinds of heuristics and guides, even though they're all pointing to really important true stuff, how, how much of our ability or inability to use them is is shaped by the social environment that we're in. We're just such fundamentally social creatures and our desire for belonging is so intense that it tends to override a lot of habits that we might want to cultivate. And so while I think that whole world is incredibly useful and I you know, read this stuff up and down, loved it, I, I wanted to take a slightly different take um, and, and see if I could reach a few people who, who are not necessarily reached by the the Daniel Kahnemans of the world. Right, and I think your book is also saying that good thinking is not merely the absence of mistakes in thinking. That's exactly right. Overcoming bias is 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 a, is a good thing in in many cases, but but the idea that we can a- arrive at some sort of perfectly balanced, unbiased point of view on anything at any time is a complete fantasy. It's never going to happen. What we really need is good biases. We need to be predisposed in in the right directions, predisposed in healthy directions. Right. When people say no judgments, I don't. I live without judgment. I'm, I, I say to them, then you wouldn't be here. You'd have been hit by a car a long time ago. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah. I mean, you're making judgments all the time, oh, right? God. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So 
the emotional bonding aspect, it doesn't always steer us wrong, but in a nutshell, we'd rather belong than be right. Yeah, I think I think that's true of almost everybody. And that's even true. I mean, I'm a really pretty pronounced introvert. And yet I still really love that sense that that what I'm saying and what I'm doing is going to earn the approval of people I admire. Not only is that not a bad thing, that can be a really good thing if those other people are good people, right? Yeah. If they are people whose admiration is is a good thing to have. So then what's the idea? I understand uh, in groups and wanting to belong, but then you talk a lot about this idea of the inner ring. Is that just uh, the idea of the in-group times 10? Yeah, in a way, yeah. This is this is an idea from C.S. Lewis, and it's a talk that he gave. It's not so much that there is an in-group and you want to belong to it. We all know that. But he's really good at kind of diagnosing psychologically and sociologically how it works and how it works by implicit, never explicitly, but implicitly offering you admission to the cool kids' table if you affirm certain things, but maybe more important, if you reject certain things, that, you know, admission to the table often means hating the people that the inner ring hate. And in fact, there's, there's, there's some recent work about that. I, I, it came out just when I was finishing the book. There was a couple of political scientists who had done this study that people form and establish and secure their group identities more by hating outsiders to that group than by affirming the insiders to the group. And this is reflected in our politics now. It's why negative partisanship is the driving force, not so much believing in your candidate than hating the other. And it definitely comports with what I know and what I see. So if it is true, and so far I'm agreeing with everything you said, if it is true that we think it's thinking, but it's often identifying with a group and the inner ring of the group sort of enforces codes about which people to hate or dislike... Right now, society is so fractious and there are these very, very polarized sides. Yet, if the idea to have group identity was so strong, wouldn't there be a more a greater trend towards enforcement of a monoculture? How is it that, you know, if you're inside one group, you're outside the other group? So why isn't it like in the 1950s where rebellion or radicalism was tamped down and everyone felt such a greater pressure to conform? Why is that not going on now? I, I mean, I think it, I think, you know, the answer to so many of these questions is social media. And I know that's the easiest answer, but I, I think it, it really is true in a way. What people have gotten really good at, and especially on Twitter, they've gotten really good at this, is seeking out the people on the other side, the out group, mm-hmm. um, people whose views you despise, seeking out the people who are the worst, the most thoughtless, hostile, angry, bitter, bigoted members of that other group, and then you can retweet them, (laughs) right? You have a way to continually reinforce your belonging in one group by continually reinforcing your hatred of the other group. And there's just so much low-hanging fruit out there, you know, so much stuff that you can pick. And so I think that provides a way for people to kind of build little sub-communities 
that are constantly aware of the other, the outgroup. They're constantly aware of the outgroup because they're actually paying attention, but they're only paying attention to the worst representatives of it. Yes, and this is why Ann Coulter and, let's say, Michael Moore are more important to the other side than their own side. If you ask a liberal, exactly. they'll, you'll get differing opinions about Michael Moore and most like him right. and most hardcore conservatives, or not most mainstream conservatives, really like Ann Coulter, but every liberal knows to be un unbelievably scandalized by what Ann Coulter says, or right. a Lena Dunham type, who's not a leading intellectual light among liberals, right. but man, do conservatives right. think that she is the apotheosis exactly. of liberalism. That's exactly right. And in fact, the more dumbass things she says, <laughs> then the more they're confirmed in that view, right? You're making sure you don't see the people who might have intelligent and thoughtful and well-considered views that are different than yours. Yeah, and it becomes a feedback loop. To I'll exempt yep. Lena Dunham from this. I think she has good intentions, but maybe some yeah. impulse control. You know, we all make mistakes. Yeah, yeah. But Fair enough. definitely Ann Coulter knows that what yep. her niche is, and she knows that if she ever started being, you know, more rational and actually a better thinker, her bottom line would suffer greatly. Not the same with Lena Dunham, but absolutely the same with Ann Coulter. You can make a career of trolling now. You, you know, can make you can a make an entire- out of it. You can make a presidency out of trolling. Yeah. And of course, when you're trolling, I mean, you know, who is it you're trolling? You're trolling the people who hate you. You know, you're trolling, yeah. trolling the people who despise you. This is one of the things that is, is, I think, especially fascinating about this presidency is the way whenever the conversation starts going in a way that President Trump doesn't want it to go, then all he's got to do is to tweet something really offensive and all of a sudden, he owns that conversation again. What completely loses there or what completely disappears there is any ability to think at all about the actual issues that underlie the personalities. Right. So will we be able to think our way out of a Trump presidency? There's that old, probably not true joke where some supporter of Adlai Stevenson said, you have the vote of every thinking American. And then he <laughs> said, yes, but I need a majority. <laughs> so yeah. I'm sure everyone who hears exactly. this will say, you know, if, 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 it's all, if it's thinking, then there's no way to stop Trump with thinking. He's not appealing to thinking. But what is the way to think and make a rational decision? Um, and it's not just the Trump president. It's like any truly demonstrably no, exactly. terrible exactly. idea in the public sphere. Two things. One is that you have to come to know the best form of the arguments of the other side. You have to be able to know what the smartest version of it is yeah. because that's going to help you to sharpen and clarify your own position. You know, I'm not saying, hey, Martin Luther King Jr., maybe maybe Jim Crow laws weren't so bad. No, I, I'm just saying understand the very best forms of the position that you oppose. And I think Martin Luther King Jr. did that in his letter to the Birmingham jail. I think you see he's giving these people credit in many cases for more thoughtfulness than they actually had. So that's the first thing. It's good for you. Well, there's that piece of advice you have about that debate style that forces yeah. debaters to do that. I, I like right. That was my favorite part of the book and I try, I'm trying to do that now, but tell us about that. The way the debate begins is that person A has to try to describe person B's position. And, and has to keep trying until person B says, yes, that is indeed my position. You have expressed it fairly and accurately. And then they flip the roles and then person B has to do it for person A. So you can't even start debating until both people say, yes, 
uh, the person on the other side there does indeed understand what I believe. And the last thing I want to ask you about, you talk about sunk costs, uh, an idea that's familiar to poker players or investors. Yeah. But it can be any number of uh, flaws in thinking that we have. And of course, if a poker player doesn't recognize that there's already money in the pot, don't chase good money after bad, he's going to make less money. Same with an investor. It's pretty empirical. But what about a thinker? I mean, we'd like to think that better thinking yields to better results. But like, do we really right. want to be better thinking? Is it definitely true that being better thinkers would, as with being a better poker player, lead to greater riches? You know, I think that if we become better thinkers, it will be better for our society as a whole. But it's not necessarily going to be better for the individual because the costs can be so high. And it's one of the things I try to talk about in the book is people who belong to communities and those communities enrich them and those communities give them their identities and then they start thinking. They start thinking about whether the things the community believes in are really true. And once they start thinking about it, then they start separating and then you know, either they separate themselves or they get thrown out. And then here they are, isolated, lonely, unsupported. And so it can really, really be costly. You know, I think about Megan, Megan Phelps Roper, the young woman who left Westboro Baptist Church because she started thinking about whether what they said w was true. And it was incredibly painful for her. She got separated from her family and from, from the, the town she grew up in, had to move somewhere else. And, and I thought, well, maybe I can at least make this a good example for somebody else. So, right. you know, so good things can come of it. But the good things come of it not for you know for her, but for the rest of us, and that's the thing that I worry about. You know, it's very hard to tell people take the risk of thinking because it's good for the whole social order, but it might not be good for you. Right, that's tough. Well, Megan 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 Phelps Roper or these ex Nazis who sort of think their way out of terrible ideologies that supports our worldview, and yet there are all these stories of guys who were libertarians and then started reading some more and then they became Nazis. They thought their way into Nazism. This comes back to the question of who are you thinking with? So one of my big themes, as you know, is that you know we're always told think for yourself, think for yourself. You can't think for yourself. You, right. you, you think with other people. You always think in a social context. And so the thing that I really want to encourage people to do is to ask, who am I thinking with? What kind of people are they? You know, and, and, who are you and, thinking and with? Can, not who are you thinking against. That's really important. That's right. Who are you thinking with? And when people are moving, I would just ask them to stop and reflect on the community that they're finding their way towards. Well, let me just say, and take this as a compliment, I think you're right. Alan <laughs> Jacobs teaches in the honors program at Baylor. His book is How to Think, A Survival Guide for a World at Odds. It comes with a great checklist in the end. It's a call to action. It's self-help. Thank you, Alan. You're welcome. Good to talk to you. And now the spiel. There Donald Trump stood like St. Stephen, plucked with so many arrows, arrows of untruth. And he sought to apply the balm of sunlight to those grievous wounds. The healing process is not done, however, especially when it came to that time, a time reporter thought, but then quickly corrected, the statement that there was a statue of Martin Luther King that was removed from the Oval Office. Donald Trump's still upset about it. Here was Trump speaking about this, one year ago Sunday. So Zeke, Zeke from Time Magazine writes a story about 
I took down. I would never do that because I had great respect for Dr. Martin Luther King. But this is how dishonest the media is. Perhaps we, we as common folk who dare not reach the heights of a great man like Trump, which is to say the height of 6'3", the weight of 239, perhaps we cannot appreciate the impact of such a mistake. Perhaps we cannot understand the magnitude of the implications, of the suggestion, of the intimation, of what this may have meant for the man, the presidency, the country, us all. Luckily, a documentary film crew has compiled the definitive account of the 43 minutes when it was thought erroneously that a small sculpture had changed rooms. MAGA Productions and DreamWorks... Oh, wait, I'm reading that wrong. It's... American dream is dead works. The American dream is dead works. Present busted 43 minutes of crisis and conflict. The evening of January 20th was a night of history and import. The president had just finished his inaugural address hours before. He was unstinting on that cold Washington day. It was chilly, cone carnage. Soon, at 7.31, Zeke Miller, a reporter for Time magazine, put out word, picked up by The Pool Reporter, that a bust of Martin Luther King Jr., placed by Barack Obama in the Oval Office, was nowhere to be seen. Zeke Miller. Yeah, it must have been blocked from my sight. But the only thing that was blocked was the fourth estate's last vestige of credibility because the bust was actually there. Again, Zeke Miller. Yeah, I, I, I checked, and it turned out the bust was there, so I tweeted a correction. I apologized. But in fact, and we have to emphasize this because Zeke Miller seems unacquainted with the very notion, Zeke Miller tweeted out several, not a correction, several corrections and apologies. 814. Correction, the MLK bust is still in the Oval Office. It was obscured by an agent and door. He tweets again, White House aide confirms the MLK bust is still there. I looked for it in the Oval two times and didn't see it. My apologies to my colleagues. 15 minutes after that, this is on me, not my colleagues. I've been doing everything I can to fix my error. My apologies to which the then press secretary, Sean Spicer, tweets, apology accepted. <laughs> Easy for you to say, Sean. What about America? Remember, at 7.31, it was reported there was no bust, and the correction came at 8.14. But in those 43 minutes, suspicion, uncertainty, and possible statuary, if not statutory, malfeasance running roughshod over a frightened nation. We live in a time of tumult and upheaval. We need to know that for solace in these times, our leaders can gaze upon the correct head and upper neck statue. This, as Sean Spicer noted in his first official press briefing, three days after accepting uh, Zeke Miller's apology. This country and to unite it. But at a time when he's trying to unite this and he keeps talking about uniting this nation, bringing people together, and then a tweet goes out in a pool report to, what, a few thousand people saying that he removed the bust of Martin Luther King. How do you think that goes over? It did not go over well. And Why? Because Zeke Miller might have thought he apologized to the right people in America, but he didn't apologize to the one person who is America. Kellyanne Conway went on Fox News three days after the 43 minutes of terror. Take it back. He apologized to his colleagues in the press. He has not apologized to the president. And the damage is done because then people, people look at Donald it. Trump as the R word. The darn bust was right there. I was standing next to it. it was Maybe so. 
But for 43 darn minutes, nay, damnable minutes, the country could not know this. Is it too far to say it threatened to tear the nation asunder? It is not. In fact, to even use the verb threaten in the previous sentence is a calumny upon the goodness of America. The president knew as much, so he traveled to CIA headquarters, stood before a wall memorializing slain CIA agents, and he rightly chose to spend three of his 15 minutes of speaking time highlighting the dishonest media underreporting his inauguration attendance and overreporting the lack of an MLK bust in the Oval Office. This is among the most harrowing challenges any president has ever inherited. Eric Foner is a Columbia University professor of history. His 2010 work, The Fiery Trial, Abraham Lincoln and American Slavery, won the Pulitzer Prize in history. Kennedy inherited the plan that became the Bay of Pigs. Fort Sumter was fired upon a month after Lincoln's inauguration. But the 43 minutes where the bust of King was thought to have been removed, I would say that was the greatest crisis any young president has ever known. Foner does not say this lightly. Actually, he does not say this at all. That was Jack Skoribnik of Mechanicsville, Virginia. He once read an article by Eric Foner. But it wasn't just leading public intellectuals and their acolytes who came to regard the perceived absence of an MLK bust as a crisis. The shockwaves went far beyond the cloistered halls of academe in Zanesville, Ohio. Lucy Manju, an out-of-work beautician and Trump voter who was rooting for Donald Trump to shake up Washington and bring back jobs, was monitoring things that night. Here's how she recalls those 43 minutes of dread. So what happened? A statue? No, uh, it's more more of a bust, like uh, just the head and neck part of the statue. Like breasts? No, no, but look, it, they said it was there, and then it wasn't there. Did you hear about this? Am I supposed to give a damn? You can hear the confusion in the voice of Lucy and the silent voices of so many others crying out in the night. In the end, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King's head was not disturbed. And in fact, President Trump this year chose to celebrate his first MLK Day with a proclamation and no public events. But the shouted phrase, quote, I am the least racist person you have ever interviewed that I can tell you. Yes, you can tell us, Mr. President, but we have learned once again that the media cannot be trusted to do so. Not Eric Foner, not Zeke Miller, not Zeke Miller's Twitter feed, not Zeke Miller's copious apologies to individuals who are not the president's. Again, Zeke Miller. At least he didn't give me a nickname. Weak Zeke Miller as he is destined to be known. Meek Zeke, decidedly off fleek Zeke. A lot of ways to go with this. The man, or just simply, the man who brought us 43 minutes of terror. Now, perhaps, the world will know. And this is why we say, The American dream is dead. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Pierre Bienname, who won't give in to what he calls stinking thinking. Mary Wilson, the senior producer of The Gist, measures twice, cuts once, thinks about it four or five hundred times. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, has a thinking checklist. Item one, don't cross off the items once you've thought about them, because it'll be hard to remember for the next time. The Gist, our motto, cogito ergo angus. I think, therefore, I lamb. Umpru depru dupru, and thanks for listening. Am I supposed to give a damn?